All right, well, this morning we, are, we were going to be going through several passages throughout this sermon, so, uh, but we will be, uh, we'll begin with one verse, a very familiar verse, uh, from John 3.16. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. May he richly bless it to the souls of his people. So this morning we're continuing this series on, uh, 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 in Reformed doctrine called catechesis. This uh, question and answer method of, of learning, and, and, uh, of learning the, the theology of the scriptures. And as such, um, uh, and we're going through some questions on the Westminster Larger Catechism, and uh, we're only going through two questions. So uh, this is you talk about a long series, you know. So, uh, but uh, but we really decided uh, we're, we're diving deeper into uh, what we call the intercession of Christ, and and so we you know last week we were talking about you know what is. The intercession of Christ. What does it mean? And uh, at, at actually, at small group, uh, at our small group on Wednesday, someone pointed out that uh, you know that's not a word that we normally use uh, in in everyday language outside of the church. This intercession, the idea of intercession, we might use intercede, although that's that's rare. That's less common. Uh, um, probably the closest word that people may use more commonly uh, in, in relative kind of ballpark would be intervention. But that doesn't quite capture what Jesus uh, does for us. And, and so the concept of intercession, uh, it, it has this kind of familiar ring to it, but it is often nebulous and ill-defined for many, uh, even those who have been in the church for a long time. And that can lead to some real problems. It can lead to real theological error that can affect our faith, our understanding of the gospel, the ministry of the church, our calling as, as Christians, uh, even our assurance of salvation. And so last week we got into the basics of Christ's intercessory ministry, why we need an intercessor, uh, and uh, both before, uh, why we need an intercessor before we came to faith, and why we need an intercessor as those who are in the faith, who hold to the faith of, of Christianity. Uh, and, and also we talked about how Christ is the true and perfect intercessor who appears in heaven on our behalf, both in our nature and in the merit of his sacrifice and obedience. That was the, essentially the, the first part of the answer to Westminster Larger Catechism, question 55, what is the intercession of Christ? How does he make intercession? And so we're, we're going a bit, uh, we're going to go into the rest of the, the answer to that question in this week and next, which, is basically, which basically says that Jesus, in, uh, focusing on what does Jesus actually do? Uh, we talked about uh, that his simply, we talked about kind of his ministry of presence, that he, he, he presents himself in heaven, in our nature, and in the merit uh, of his obedience and sacrifice. But what does Jesus actually do? And the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, question, uh, or the answer to that question, uh, tells us that he does three things. Uh, that he declares his will for our salvation. Secondly, he answers all accusations against his people. 
And third, he procures things for us. He gives things and gives them to his people. And so we're going to look at the first two of those today. We'll look at what Jesus procures for his people next week as we close out this series. And so first, uh, we see that Jesus, uh, in his intercessory ministry, declares his will for his people. Specifically, Jesus declares his will to redeem us. As we read at the beginning, just a moment ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's one of those red letter verses, right? Now, I hate to break it to you, the the original Greek manuscripts don't have red letters, okay? But it's in red letters because we believe Jesus said it, right? And so, and so this is Jesus declaring his will to redeem his people. But we, we need to make sure that we're clear about this. This is not that this is not merely Jesus' will. This is also his father's will. So, uh, so we, we have to be careful that we don't start viewing Jesus's, uh, the nature of Jesus' ministry as, as, as if he is this you know, uh, redeemer who is holding back the angry and vengeful heavenly father who just wants to throw lightning bolts at us. Right. That's a very it's actually kind of more kind of like a view of the Greek gods where you have Zeus who just wants to do what he wants to do. And yeah, I'm going to go squish them over here. And then but then, you know, uh, Athena or or Hercules or Hera has got to go in there and and hold Zeus back or distract him or trick him. Uh, And so I just gave you the clean version uh, of of that. So then the Greek gods, they get they, they get weird. But uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and his ministry Um, as our Savior, was born of the love of the Father for us. The Son loves loves us, absolutely, but what does the text say? It doesn't say, for for God the Son so loved the world. It's saying God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son. This is the manner in which God the Father loved the world. He, he made all things. He upholds things all absolutely. We, he reveals his goodness in creation, in the created order, and how he upholds everything. But he loves the world in a very specific way. He sent his son to die. He sacrifices his only son, whom he loves above all, to give eternal life to sinners, to all those who trust in his son. And so it is the will of the Father in heaven that whoever believes in the Son should have eternal life. So the doctrine of the, of the Trinity can indeed be confusing, but we need to be clear wherever we can be that God the Father has a will and that God the Son has a will because they are two persons of the Trinity and each of the persons has a will. The Spirit has a will also. But, and to, but these wills are not at odds with each other. Jesus said that he had come to do the will of his Father, and that his Father delights in him, glorifies him for that particular reason that he does and delights in doing the will of his Father. And as Jesus declares um, his will, we must remember that it is in perfect agreement with the will of his Father 
his gracious and most loving Father. And so Jesus declares his will to save all those who have been given to him by the Father in salvation. In John 17, verse 9, in his what we call his high priestly prayer, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus makes it clear about whom he is praying for. He is interceding through prayer. He is interceding in his deeds of sacrifice and a righteous life for those the Father has given to him. The elect belong to the Father who gives them to his Son, and the Son prays for them, dies for them. In short, he intercedes for them. And Jesus, we note here, declares his will for his whole church. Those who have been given to Jesus are those who belong to what we like to call the invisible church, the elect from every nation over all time, who God has planned to redeem and bring to faith in Christ in real time. And so Jesus prays in verse 20 of that same prayer, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, those immediately in earshot of him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus intercedes not only for his immediate disciples within the sound of his voice, but the disciples who will come through the ministry of the word through the proclamation of the gospel. And who's that? It's us. Christ, his will to save extends to the whole of his church. Last week, we read from Hebrews 7, from which the Holy Spirit speaks to us, assuring to us that Jesus is the perfect high priest who is able to save to the uttermost. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for his people. As long as Jesus lives and lives eternally, he lives always to intercede for his people. Jesus has willed to save you. He declared his will to save you, even in that prayer thousands of years ago, before you were even conceived. Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for you to be saved. He prayed for you to be with him, to be united with your brothers and sisters in faith, in love, forever in future glory. There is not one member of the true church of God who will be abandoned or rejected by Jesus Christ. As I like to say, and I'm not the first one to say it, there are no empty chairs in heaven. There isn't a chair for Bob Smith. And we're like, well, we thought he'd be here. But, you know, he, he must have canceled his reservation at the last minute. It's not how it works. Jesus declares his will to save all of his church, the whole of his church. And, all, and, and he also declares his will 
for the whole salvation of his church. Jesus in that prayer in John 17 verse 24 declares, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, notice he comes back to that a lot, those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. There is no partial salvation with Jesus. As the apostle wrote, the redemptive work that God begins, he will certainly complete because of the nature of God in his being and even more because of the nature of Jesus' intercessory ministry. When Jesus prays for his church, the redemption that he brings, this is a crucial point we need to understand. Jesus in John 17 is not making a request for, for God the Father to do him a favor. He's not saying, God, you're my dad. Do me a solid here. I need you to help me out. He is the Son of God, and certainly he can ask anything of his Father simply by the virtue of the relationship he has with him. But he is more... He is our intercessor. And so the Son of God, He is the one who has by His perfect life and bloody death and His wondrous resurrection purchased for Himself His people, His church, you and me, body and soul forever. He has bought us, redeemed us, and one author brought this out, and this is uh, many years ago in the 1800s when he wrote this. But he, but he, he pointed out that you know all our prayers that we that we make, our requests that we bring for God, are for God to do things for us, to help us out, to do things for us that we don't deserve, that we have no right to demand. That's why we pray them in Jesus' name, right? We don't pray them in our name. We pray them in Jesus' name. Because we need God to do things for us that we can't do for ourselves. We need God to do things for us that we don't deserve. Like feed us and clothe us, heal us, help us, strengthen us, uphold us. But Christ's prayer is not like that. Christ does not make a request for the unmerited favor from God. But his prayer is a righteous, without being rude or disrespectful, a righteous demand from his Father for him to receive what he is owed according to his righteousness, obedience, and sacrifice. He's saying, Father, give me what I am owed. What am I owed? Those I have purchased with my blood. Stephen Charnock was a Puritan theologian. One of the things he notes, and this is an important point, he says, God is more committed and willing to forgive your sin than you are willing to commit sin. God is more willing and desirous to forgive you of your sin in his son Jesus Christ than you and I are to commit 
that sin in the first place. Think about that. God is more committed to his gracious love than we are to our most cherished sin that we are ashamed of. What, again, what is Jesus demanding in this prayer? He's demanding God the Father to give him you and me. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. Jesus is the intercessor who declares his will to save you and for God the Father, his Father, to give us to him by virtue of his death and his resurrection. What have you done so far in all of this other than sin? All by faith. All by grace. Carried, given from the Father to the Son through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is doing. That is what he does. He declares his will. And it is given to him because he, not because he's hoping that the Father might give him a Christmas present. That'd be weird. But if you start thinking about that. But because, uh, but, but he's, because he is owed he has purchased us. He is giving him what he is due. And just think about that. Christ is receiving to him what he is due by his sacrifice. And by his sacrifice, we do not receive what we are due. It's that great exchange. And so Jesus declares his will for salvation, for his whole church, for a whole salvation that we cannot add to, that we cannot take away from. And secondly, Jesus answers all accusations against us. Man, you know, last Sunday night was really difficult because we were in Psalm 88, the kind of really dark psalm and stuff like that. Man, it's all good news this morning. <laughs> it's all good news this morning. Jesus answers all accusations against us, and I mean all accusations in all caps. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verses 33 through 34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Against, and who are the elect? Those whom the Father has given to the Son. Those who's the fa- who, who the Son has demanded from his Father because they are promised to him, given to him, and purchased by him by his blood. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that. Who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? And so what this means is that Jesus answers all accusations. And so he answers all the false accusations against the church. The church, from its inception, has been no stranger to all manner of false accusations. In the earliest days of the church, the the Christians were labeled as dangerous atheists by the Romans. Because they didn't believe in the Roman God, so they were called atheists, oddly enough. They were called good-for-nothings, the, the, the poor and, and, and slaves to be despised. They were even called incestuous cannibals who deserved to die 
today in our own time. The Christian faith is said to be, even in our own country in the West, that the church is, the, is supposedly the source of many, if not most, of the moral and so, social ills in the world. That our adherence to the scriptures and the faith once delivered to all the saints is actually a program of misogyny and abuse and hatred. If only we could rid ourselves of these troublesome churches tax them out of existence. If we could just get rid of these Christians with their morals and their Bibles and their concepts of sin and grace, of good and evil, of, 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 man, of men and women, marriage and family, holiness and responsibility, then we would have a wonderful utopia or at least be more, you know, well on our way. Jesus answers all of these accusations by denying them. By proving, even if by the suffering of his saints, as we pray for our enemies and we do good to them, as we bear our crosses daily, that we are innocent and our enemies are brought to shame. Indeed, in the end, the church will be vindicated against every false accusation against her. And this will be done when our Savior comes to judge the world. Jesus answers all the false accusations against his church, and that is a good thing. But even more importantly, Jesus answers all the true accusations against his church. It is a fool's errand to go about trying to whitewash the history of the church that is replete with sin and failure. You can look at the church today, it's undeniable. You can look back at the church through the Reformation and you will find that all that glitters is not gold. That all our heroes from the Reformation were deeply flawed men and women who had many failings. We love Luther. Don't read what he said about Jewish people. All right? Doesn't go well. You know? With, you know, you know, even with John Calvin, you know, there's the whole Servetus affair and, you know, we, we really try to work hard to let John Calvin completely off on that one. we like, well, he didn't order his execution. Well, you know, when they were going to execute him, he said, well, don't burn him at the stake. He cut his head off. It's a little kinder. You know, like, it's just kind of, you know, just, you know. But I like the saying, it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a twist on the saying, but, uh, you know, say never meet your heroes. Well, actually, the Bible teaches us, Christian faith teaches us, always meet your heroes so that you'll never worship them. Right? Always meet your heroes and learn that they're flawed so that you will, will not worship them and create idols of them. Doesn't mean that they're not beneficial, doesn't mean they didn't do wonderful things, doesn't mean they weren't blessings to the church. But it means that there were moral failings during the highest periods of the Reformation. And in Blessed Geneva, there were, there were faults and failures of the church. We can go back to the earliest centuries of the church and see all the doctrinal heresies. We can go back to the New Testament letters in our Bibles. And what do you find there? A bunch of churches sitting around in perfection? Go read 1 Corinthians. You're like, oh, I wouldn't want to be a member of that church. And yet Jesus writes, I mean, yet the Apostle Paul writes to it and calls them a church. Calls them blessed by God. Calls, you know, talks, it goes on for a while about how wonderful it is to see the gospel at work. And then he talks about all kinds of nastiness going on. There's no sense in denying the failures that are in the church. We look at ourselves. Look at ourselves. Our church. Today. You. Me. Right here. Right now. 
We may be the victims of various false accusations, but let us be honest in our hearts. Do we not, when we search and we speak honestly, do we not find the remaining corruption and the desires of the flesh there and reigning far more than we are wanting to admit publicly? Are we not beset daily with temptations that appeal to our own corruptions, our temptations of pride, greed, lust, and unbelief and doubt? That to our shame we have often given in to these temptations. We have rationalized them and justified them. We have grieved the Spirit, violated the commands of God, and wounded ourselves and others. That we have sinned and that sin in itself is worthy of the fires of hell forever. Each and every sin. Brothers and sisters, the wonderful soul-lifting news is that Jesus answers the accusations against us that are false, but he, even most importantly, he answers the accusations that are true. Paul says Jesus answers those accusations with his death, with the penalty paid for our sin. He answers those accusations with the wounds that are in his arms, his hands, his wrists, and his side. Because in Christ, we have died to the power and the penalty of those sins. Even the ones we have committed today. He answers those accusations not only with his death, but he answers those accusations with his resurrection. That is, in Jesus, we have not only died to the power uh, and and, and the, the rule of the flesh and death and sin, but we have been raised to life in Jesus, and because he is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, we have eternal life, hope, and salvation, which can never fail or never be taken away. That is, when Satan goes to Jesus to accuse us before him, he just says to Satan, don't look at them, keep your eyes on me, because I answer the accusations on their behalf. I speak on their behalf. And that's why I wanted to close this out today with a picture of intercession that comes from the prophets. Now, I've done a whole sermon on this passage, and so we won't go into, uh, we're not going to go into sermon number two this morning, don't worry. Uh, but we have, there's a picture of intercession, a powerful one from the prophet Zechariah. Your friend Zechariah, I know you read it every week, uh, the book of Zechariah, chapter three, verses one through five, a vision given to the prophet And then the Lord showed me Joshua, he writes, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand, at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is a powerful vision of intercession given to the prophet by the Lord. In it, Joshua the high priest stands representing God's people before the angel of the Lord. To his right is Satan, the accuser, who doesn't, who's not making false accusations against Joshua as far as we can tell. He, and he is not making false accusations against God's people whom Joshua represents. Because Joshua, we are told, is standing before the holy presence of God in clothes that are laden with filthy excrement. And Satan, for his part, silently, essentially just motions over to Joshua and just says, just look at him. Take a whiff. You can smell the sin on this guy. And therein is the picture of the problem that we stand as sinful human beings before the living God and in all our, our sins are before Him. We can't hide from the, them from Him. The stink of sin is upon us. It is inescapable. And you know this if you have any animals that live inside your house. right? You're like, I don't know where it is, but I know it's here. Right? Let the search begin. So what does the angel say? The angel rebukes not Joshua, who he could rebuke, who deserves the rebuke, who deserves the condemnation, but he rebukes the accuser, Satan. Why? Is it because Joshua's a really good guy? He's like, but, but Satan, haven't you, haven't you watched Aladdin? He's a diamond in the rough. Right? You just, you just got to give him some time. He'll, he'll, he'll turn out good. No, he rebukes the devil because the Lord God has chosen this people for himself. He has pulled them out of the fires of judgment by his mercy. Rebuke you, Satan. Why? Because I chose them, I saved them, and they belong to me. And if you want them, you got to go through me. And you ain't going to win. And so what's the result? Joshua standing in for the people of God has his iniquity removed and then is clothed with pure clothing. This is the gospel story. R.C. Sproul even wrote a children's book, a picture book, about this story called The Priest in Dirty Clothes. Like Joshua, we stand before the Lord with the sight and smell of sin all over us. But Jesus comes and takes our filthy garments upon himself and receives the penalty that goes with them. And in their place, Jesus clothes us with pure vestments. He clothes us with his pure righteousness. Such is the mercy of God. This is the way and why the Lord rebukes the devil when he accuses us even of the things that are true. 
but he's a sinner. He's an idolater. He's, he's gluttonous. He's, he's lustful. He's lazy. He's cowardly. He's a fool. And what is more, he's a pastor. And Jesus responds, true, but he's mine. She's mine. My father gave them to me. I've died for them. There is therefore no condemnation for all who are united to me, and I have clothed them in my righteousness. I've pulled them from the fire so that they will be with me forever in glory. So, what does Christ do for us as our intercessor? He declares his will to apply his perfect obedience and sacrifice and resurrection to us, to all his church. He answers all accusations against his people, the false and the true. In short, Jesus saves his church. He declares his will to save you, dear Christian, and answer all accusations made against you. And so in response to what Christ does for us as our intercessor today, let us offer our praise and our lives, our very bodies, to his service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have such a Savior as we do in Jesus. Oh Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your goodness. Father, bless us. Heal us, heal our divided minds. Oh, lift our eyes up to our Savior. May we rejoice in him always, for we know that he always lives to make intercession for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand.